Yo, what's up? Welcome back to the Business Kids Podcast. We talk to real people, not their job titles. Let's get straight to business. Welcome back to the Business Kids Podcast. Today we talk to Sean Mehta, a Shula graduate who now teaches business. We talk about how he teaches business to actually make it interesting and where education is going in the future. Before we begin, uh, why don't you introduce yourself really quickly? My name is Sean Mehta, class of... 2002, which was a long time ago, uh, IMBA. So I have a business background. I did my undergrad in business at Laurier, uh, master's, uh, international master's of MBA at Schillick. Uh, and then I have a teaching degree from the U of T. Uh, and now I'm a high school teacher and author. All right, that's pretty good. Kind of well-rounded uh, introduction to start us off. Yeah. So, Just to start you off, I'm happy to go into as much detail as you want. <laughs> All right. So I guess uh, I just want to jump right now to another section of the intro. We know, as we were talking to Sophia earlier, that you work right now as a high school teacher. So we're just curious if you yeah. can explain what you teach and uh, what your favorite course is to teach. Um, well, I'm a business teacher. So I teach uh, different facets of business um, from grade nine to 12. Uh, it could be an introduction to business technology, like how to use uh, different types of uh, business-related software, like Word, Excel, PowerPoint. Um, and then it can go all the way up to marketing, um, accounting, uh, economics, and then my personal favorite, international business, uh, which probably stemmed from doing the uh, IMBA at Schulich. So that's definitely my favorite course to teach. All right. Um, so given the fact, uh, as uh, we've discussed that you are a business teacher, how do you come up with these like kind of inno- innovative ideas when it comes to creating projects for students? Um, well, I think, uh, doing the degree at Laurier and, uh, Schulich is a big part of that. Um, my number one purpose as a business high school teacher, particularly for my senior level students is to prepare them for university. So or college or whatever uh, they have to do after high school. So I often find that in high school, a lot of students are kind of living in a bubble. Um, so I feel that I need to prepare them for that. So I like to do things that are a lot more challenging, more engaging. I demand a lot from my students. Um, but I find that what happens is in the beginning they resist and they complain and like, so why are you making us do all this stuff? And then once they put a little bit of time into it, they actually get invested into it. Uh, to the point where they'll come back to visit me a year or two later and I'll be like, oh my God, it's so great to see you. I haven't seen you so long. They're like, we just want our projects back. Uh, So, (laughs) you know, it's almost like it becomes their own baby or child where they want their projects back because they're so proud of the work they did. And then once they start university or uh, or college, they start to realize that, you know what? I handled Meta's class. This is a breeze. Uh, (laughs) So the the greatest feedback I get from my students is like, sir, you prepared me for uh, life after high school. Yeah, I noticed, like, for me personally, um, I took international business too at my high school, but, like, uh, no disrespect to my school, it was kind of like a, a joke course. Like, it wasn't very intensive. I think we had one project that it was, you know, a longer paper that we had to write, but essentially it was very, like, low-level knowledge that you had to prepare. And there wasn't, it wasn't like in... Because then, you know, I got to university and it's a lot more cases and thinking and actually coming up with solutions as opposed to just finding information. So, right. yeah, I can see that that is 
pretty helpful because for me it was a bit of a culture shock without something like that for economics i do a, com a collective bargaining simulation uh i create a case uh about um collective bargaining contract and uh, i put them into groups and some students are management some groups some uh, students are union and they have to collectively find um a new contract that makes both sides happy so i, I try to do projects like that that um are learning, but stuff that they've never done before and stuff that they'll remember for the rest of their lives. So it's mostly like scenario-based so they can get truly invested into what, they, what they're doing, right? Yeah, for my grade Not 12 courses, for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just want to ask, why do you think adapting the curriculum and kind of staying modern is so important? Well, we just have to uh, constantly change with the times, right? Um, otherwise, I can't be teaching you stuff that, uh, you know, stuff that I learned 20, 30 years ago. Uh, it'll be irrelevant or stagnant. I mean, most of the jobs that uh, you guys will be having in the next 10 years don't even exist right now. So it's a constant effort of trying to, you know, stay with the times and teach stuff that's relevant. Um, whenever I'm teaching something, I always explain to them why or how they'll use it in their real lives or how it's practical. Mm -hmm. um... Okay, I guess uh, a, more, a bit of a discussion-based question I just want to ask is now on the topic of like, you know, moving forward and you got to change because business and, you know, just general life will always be changing. What do you see as, especially now with COVID hitting and classes are online where, you know, we're interviewing you right now from I don't know how many miles away, but where do you see the future of like education going in the terms of like, you know, now we've had the pilot of things are going online. People may realize, you know, I don't actually have to pay 20 grand a year to go to university. Where do you see like, where do you see a post-secondary education going? Well, not just post-secondary education, even with the workforce, uh, the paradigm was already shifting towards becoming more uh, um, online, um, you know, where people are not actually going to an office and actually going into a classroom. There was already a movement towards that, um, albeit a little bit slower. COVID has just accelerated everything. So um, things are just, things will go back to the way they, there might be a higher balance towards that because each model has a pro and a con. Um, but I, we're here, for example, most companies are not going to send their employees back to the offices. They'll realize they don't need to actually have huge overhead in terms of actually having offices that they're paying for. Um, so even from a cost perspective, companies are going to say, you know what, our productivity is relatively good. If people want to stay home, that's fine. Uh, there'll be a movement towards uh, less people living in the, in the urban areas, moving to more suburban areas uh, because they won't need to commute anymore because uh, they can do everything from home. So all of our society, culture, all those things are going to change fundamentally because of uh, technology. Uh, and communications and COVID has just accelerated that in my humble in my humble high school opinion. I think just from looking at it and like um, I'm staying at home for university but I know my friends are going to campus and uh, by the looks of what's going on like just at university campuses and like as people I think right now we think that we've cleared the hump and we're kind of like no. <laughs> you know, we're leaving it. But like, I think people coming back together will just send their right yeah, back. Skyrocket. Yeah, I have a 10 year old daughter and she's wonderful and she's 
pretty responsible. But the times where she's wearing the mask, she's eating it, she play, puts it over her eyes. Like she's <laughs> she, she's incapable of keeping it long term on her face, and she's constantly touching it with her hands. So uh, you know, it's it's the numbers are going to go up. There's no doubt in my mind about that. Yeah. Uh, and then they're going to have to reshut down things. That's We've what not I been conditioned. Yeah, we've not been conditioned to like be with a mask all the time, right? It's going to be hard for everybody to adapt to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been doing, uh, we've been essentially communicating and interacting with other human beings our whole lives. And now in the last few months, we've been told to totally change the way we do yeah, that. Yeah, eradicate that, yeah. Yeah, it and takes time. Yeah. And, and it's still there, right? So. I, one thing that I find interesting, that I find curious is what would happen if, uh, say someone, like my, for example, uh, my mother's pregnant right now, so she's going to have a baby in a few months. What would happen if this baby, thank you, <laughs> this baby uh, is, conditioned to live under this type of lifestyle with wearing a mask and keeping your distance, how yeah. would they, like, how would they experiences, how would their experiences change in comparison to? Yeah, how do you make friends like that? Yeah, you know, I don't know, it's, uh, it's going to be tough. But again, mm-hmm. if you, I talk about humans being resilient, children are even more resilient. So yeah. um, it's incredible how quickly they adapt. Um, my daughter is adopted and uh, we adopted her when she was five. And the, the morning I woke up and she had moved into the house, um, she was standing right in front of me. She's like, morning, daddy. And I'm like, who's this strange little person in my house? <laughs> so, you know, I had more trouble adapting than she did. Uh, and she's awesome. So uh, kids are resilient and people adapt. People, that's just the way you don't know anything any better, right? Um, so your, your, is, it, is it a brother or sister? Do you know? Uh, sister. Is this? Okay, so your sister, for example, won't know anything else. But hopefully by the time they're a little bit older, this will be past us. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. We're going to stay hopeful in that, positive in that regard. In terms of silver lining, COVID will teach us all to be better in terms of personal hygiene. We, we're all, <laughs> we'll all wash our hands. No, honestly, yeah. we'll all wash our hands. More. When we're sick, we'll start wearing masks like they do in Asia anyways. Um, we'll change our behavior and that will reduce Ill, other type of illnesses in the future. There'll be less colds, for instance, right? So, yeah, blue. So, there's always a silver lining in everything. <laughs> so, I just wanted to, I guess, shift gears a little bit. And we know that you're a published author, and you recently did your first illustrated children's book uh, entitled yep. Sheila's Forever Family. Yeah. So, first of all, I just wanted to get your uh, story on that, kind of like a synopsis of what it's about and things like that. Uh, sure. Uh, so, I even have it here. So, Hey, there you hey. go. Yeah, sorry. There you go. There's the cover. For camera. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, you know, you don't know if you have time or anything, but anyway, mm. so there's the cover of it. But essentially, um, uh, it's about how um, the, the process involved in adopting mm-hmm. a child. Uh, so it was inspired by uh, adopting Shallow, our daughter. And essentially, um, if you're in Ontario and you're adopting publicly, um, before you actually meet uh, the child you're going to adopt, you have to create something called a life book. And what the life book is, it pretty much prepares the child of what to expect for their new forever family. Uh, so it gives pictures and uh, descriptions about where they're going to be their, who are their new grandparents, so what's their bedroom going to look like, what's their new school going to be like, uh, what we're like. So we had to create that before we adopted Shiloh. And then that book was given to Shiloh and she went through it and it kind of got her mind used to the fact of what to expect with her new forever family. And I thought that was such an interesting thing uh, that not many people knew about. Uh, and I thought it was such a touching thing too uh, for us to create that for her and then for her to go through that uh, before she actually met us in person. Uh, and she still keeps that. So 
that was the genesis of actually creating an illustrated children's book about that process. Well, it's very touching. That's a very, <laughs> yeah, I expect it to be some tears right now. Yeah. <laughs> Then we're out after the podcast. I can't do it right now, but you know. I know. Well, you're about to be <laughs> a bit of a sister, so you're already emotional. Yeah. <laughs> I am, yeah. Uh, well, coming from a family of four boys and then having the first girl is quite a, a shift oh, of culture shock. <laughs> so once, she, once she starts dating, man, she's oh. going to go through a rock. <laughs> All four people have shotguns. <laughs> you haven't seen his older brothers. They are, they're big boys. Yeah. So oh. Dating's going to be, it's going to be tough. Look very friendly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we know, okay, you wrote this book and you've written other ones before. And I just yeah. think a question that I want to ask is how do you go from studying business and teaching business to publishing books? Like, that seems like a, a big jump to me. Yeah, um, yes and no. Um, okay, let me backtrack a bit. So I came from a dip, typical Indian brown family, okay? Um, my parents essentially expected me to be either be a doctor a lawyer or an engineer. And at that time, business was a possibility fourth option to go into business uh, where I didn't uh, disgrace the entire family. <laughs> so, right. So I couldn't be a doctor because the sight of blood made me pass out. Um, I couldn't be a lawyer because I couldn't convince a judge or jury that I was brown. I'm not good at, conv- I'm not good. I'm not a very persuasive person, particularly at that time. I was very, very uh, introverted and quiet. Mm-hmm. And in terms of engineering, I can't even build, maintain the structural integrity of Lego. Like I'm not an engineer at all. So those three options were gone, which only left business. And I had taken some business courses in high school and I'm like, you know what? I don't mind it. Uh, I'm not super passionate about it, but I can do it. And um, it will keep my parents off my back. So I picked business. Uh, I went to Laurier, to be honest, just to get away from my family at that time. Um, I fell in love with the school. It was a fantastic school. Uh, and that kind of came out of my shell. Um, so Sebastian, you said you're saying you're right now at home. Hopefully you get an opportunity to live on campus once this is over because it's a it, part of growing up is living on your own. Um, so I went through Laurier, learned how to, you know, grew up, became independent and all that stuff. And then I came back, I finished Laurier, started working. Um, I worked at, uh, it was called Anderson uh, Business Consulting, Arthur Anderson Business Consulting, which became Accenture. Uh, that was my first job out of Laurier. Uh, absolutely hated it. Uh, felt like a number. Um, uh, did not feel like worthy at all. As valued as a human being. Uh, a resource. Um, did not enjoy that at all. So how the hell to get out of this? Uh, and I said, the only way to get my parents again, because uh, I'm only 22 at this time, was to do my MBA. My parents could brag about having their son being in the, having an MBA, to, you know, at all their yeah. other <laughs> parties, right? With all their other friends. Uh, and the main purpose of doing the MBA was to get my parents off my back and to actually start doing which I, something that I always had in my heart, which was to try to start writing. So the MBA was just a way to get my parents on my back and to start writing secretly. Um, I did the international MBA because I wanted to travel and see the world a bit. And then I went to India um, and I worked to study there. And that's when I started to, essentially keeping a journal of all my crazy experiences in India because that country is like another like another planet stuff that happened there is like crazy. Uh, and even though I'm Indian, I'm not really Indian. I'm more like a, a potato or a coconut, right? I'm brown on the outside, white on the inside. I was born and raised in Canada. So that was a massive experience for me. And I would keep it, I would write down everything that happened to me in India, all my crazy stuff, like crazy stuff. And then the ideas of a novel started forming in my mind. 
and 9-11 happened when I was in India as well, which kind of changed the world. Um, so the business programs were essentially to keep my parents off my back, right? But I started to really enjoy business too. And I'm also very pragmatic. I said, you know what? I'm going to be a starving artist. I need to make money. I need to make a living. So I said, I'm going to do something that makes me happy, um, but also pursue a career where I can actually make a living as well. So I found that there was a balance between business because the skills I learned there are quite useful. Um, but I'm not a corporate shark. That's not my, I can't wear, I, I felt like the tie was a noose when I used to go to work. Um, yeah. I would get to my, I would wake up, put on the suit, drive to, to the GO train station, take the GO train, you know, go through Union Station, work in those massive towers. I was making really good money at that time. Super good money. And I would sit in my cubicle, I would log in, and I realized that I cannot live my life where I'm spending five-sevenths of my life doing something I hate. And that became abundantly clear. And I said, money will not fill that void. So that was me. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to do what I love to do. When I was at Laurier, I was a teacher's assistant, a TA. And um, can anyone guess how much money I made an hour as a TA? Okay, it sounds low. Um, 12. 10 bucks an hour. $12? 10? I'm going, I'm going 10. Okay, I'm going 12. Those are your final answers? Hold on, hold on. Um, nine thirty. Seven. Oh no! Now he's gone below me. Five dollars an hour. Oh, uh, two. One. What? You made you made sense. I made fifty cents an hour once I. Yo, what? Hours I worked. Okay, <laughs> fifty cents an hour. Right now, I finished my. Is that I, legal? No, no, no. What's that? They would pay you, let's say, a thousand dollars for the semester, or five hundred dollars semester, whatever the amount was. Yeah. And I'll be like, okay, based on the number of hours I'm putting into this stuff in terms of learning the material and teaching it to other students and then marking, I'm making 50 cents an hour, right? Which is insane. Yeah. But, but after uh, finishing Laurier, I had a couple of jobs at Laurier and then I finished Laurier and I worked uh, for uh, Arthur Anderson Business Consulting, which became Accenture. Then I did my IMBA. Then I worked for the provincial government. Um, I did all these different jobs and I, I hated all of them, except when I was a TA, well, I was making 50 cents an hour. That was the best job I ever had, where I actually enjoyed working and I didn't mind putting in the time. I actually said I would do it for free. I really enjoyed it. So I quickly realized that you have to do what you enjoy to do. And if you enjoy it, you'll get good at it. And if you're good at it, you'll make money anyways. I realized that you got to do what you enjoy. Um, so I, went, I, I, left, I quit my job, went to teacher's college. I said, I'm going to become a teacher because that's the best job I ever had, even though I made no money. And I said, I'm going to obviously become a business teacher because I have all this business background mm -hmm. uh, and I can still enjoy teaching, you know, uh, business, which I actually, I, I do enjoy it. Uh, and then I can spend my time, spare time like this summers and pursuing what my passion is and my creative outlet, which is writing. So I found a balance of what made me happy. And I didn't change careers until I was about 28, 29. Uh, I was in the business corporate world until then. So I didn't become a teacher until I was 29, 30 years old. More or less, never too late to... Make what makes you do what makes you happy. You know what? Most people know in their heart what they want to do. It takes just, just takes courage to kind of follow it. And uh, do you know what my father said when I told him I was becoming a high, uh, teacher? My my strict, my strict Indian father. Uh, no, I don't know. He said he goes. You mean professor, right? <laughs> I said no, 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 high school teacher. And then he looked at me, and there was a long, long, long silence, like really long silence. And uh, I thought maybe he froze, but I was talking to him face to face. And, <laughs> and uh, he said, but that's a woman's job. So Ooh. 
right? <laughs> so, so it took a long time for my parents to even understand and recognize that, uh, you know, you have to do what you love to do. And I'm able to make a living off it, of it. And I have a good balance in my life. So but it took a long time for me to do those things. So that was probably one of the most brilliant artist, artists I've ever seen. Every time I was teaching accounting, uh, all in her ledgers and on her financial statements, she was doodling nonstop. Brilliant artist. And she became an accountant uh, because that's what her parents expected her to do. And God gave her this gift to be an artist, right? So uh, every person has to pursue and follow what they love. Um, but I mean, you have to make a living as well. I understand that. But you always need to follow your dreams. Hopefully that doesn't sound too cliche or cheesy. Yeah, that's fair. You switched, I guess, leapfrogging back and forth between things until you landed on it. And I know we have a lot of people in uh, business schools right now. So I just wanted to ask because business school, I guess, is or business careers are notorious for being, like you said, very high hours, high pay, but you know, you work Sell yourself. yourself that. Yeah. So what advice would you give to people, I guess, you know, in business, but also in general for like you said, with some people who feel maybe like their pathway was selected for them. What advice would you give people to try and make their own balance? Um, that's tough because that's every person is different. Um, the one thing I noticed when I was in the corporate world is people were often asked to do things that went against their conscience or what they thought was ethical. Um, and, the, and the thing I would say is all of us are going to, particularly for in business, all of us are going to reach a point where we're asked to do things from people that are more power and money than us uh, to do things that are questionable, unethical, gray area that go against uh, how we were raised, our conscience and our values. And, you know, you have the little devil on one side and then the little angel on the other. And what I would definitely say is that you should always follow your heart, always follow your conscience. Uh, do not take the path where you're sacrificing uh, who you are for more money and power. Um, I've seen it corrupt and destroy people. It's so not worth it. Um, as long as you're a good person and you follow your heart, whatever path you take, we will all end up and be fine. I honestly, truly believe that. Um, it's irrespective of what you're passionate about, irrespective of what you do, uh, your career path, none of that really matters. As long as you're a good person and you follow your heart, uh, you generally, people tend to turn out really, really good. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about even like the thousands of students I've taught have come back and talked to me. Amen. I don't know if that answered your question, Sebastian. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that uh, um, I just kind of to I wanted to, I guess, bounce off of the ideas that we've had based on uh, the book, because I feel like that was kind of the catalyst that started all of this discussion about following your dreams and following your path and basically following your heart towards who you want to become and who you want to be in the future. Um, another project that I know uh, you worked on was that uh, you wrote a story for a film, if I'm not mistaken, uh, called yes. The Mall. Yep. Uh, can, you, can you tell us about a little bit of the project and how was it working with your brother, who was a film director, towards this uh, piece of media? Um, so so I, I wrote Amal when I was in India. Um, and Amal's about a rickshaw driver. And Have either of you ever been to India? I have not. No, but I do, I do know what that is, roughly. Okay. So our auto rickshaw driver is almost like a taxi driver, um, except they drive it like almost like a three-wheeler that's covered. Uh, oh. People might, might notice the tutut, right? And, yeah, we have those in Ecuador too. So that, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> so right, and then make like a little buzzing sound, like a nee! right. Yeah. <laughs> in the back. So I, when I was going through living in India, working in India, traveling through India, studying through India for a year as part of my IMBA, 
I had to deal with rickshaw drivers all the time. And those people are thieves. Like they just rob you blind. They take you down the wrong routes. They'll pick up other passengers. They'll stop at the gas station and fill up their gas tank as they're still charging you. Like whatever, if you give them money, they don't have change. And I know these are Indian rupees. So like it really has no real huge amount of monetary value compared to the Canadian dollar. But it just became a matter of principle where you're just tired of being cheated nonstop every day, nonstop, right? They see you, they know, as soon as I open my mouth, they know I'm a foreigner and they just take you for a ride, literally. Yeah. Uh, so I used to hate taking the rickshaw. I just hated it. And I once had an experience where I actually met an honest rickshaw driver, where I actually he took me directly to the right route. Um, I gave him money and he gave me change. And I was so blown away by this because no rickshaw driver ever has change. And I said, here, here's a tip. And he goes, I can't. It's my God given duty to get you from point A to point B at this price. This is the price. I don't want your tip. And then I emptied my wallet. I'm like, just take it all. Like I was just so blown away by this person because I was so angry and cynical towards rickshaw drivers. And that created the idea of Amal. So Amal is a humble, honest rickshaw driver um, who essentially encounters this angry, angry, terrible, cantankerous old man as a passenger who treats him like garbage. And later we find out that this old man essentially is a multi-billionaire who's been walking the streets of New Delhi to try to find one honest person in India so he can give his fortune to because he hates his children because they're all terrible. They're like, the tr- they're like the Trump children, right? And he just doesn't <laughs> want to give uh, And then the story is uh, the old man dies and, they, he, and the lawyer gets the will and the lawyer has to find this rickshaw driver in Delhi and he doesn't know who he is. He only knows his first name is Amul and there's thousands of Amul rickshaw drivers throughout Delhi. So the movie is him, the lawyer trying to find him find him, the family trying to stop him, and Amal having no idea what's going on. So that's the premise of Amal. Uh, I wrote the short story. My brother, who's a film director, read it and liked it, and he made it into a short film. It won a bunch of money at the Toronto International Film Festival. So he got funded to actually make it into a feature-length film, uh, and then that got into TIFF and won a bunch of awards. Uh, We're really, really proud of it. But that was like about 12 years ago. Um, My brother, Rishi Mehta, is now doing a bunch of other cool stuff. He just did a, a film series called Delhi Crime on Netflix. Uh, so you guys should check that out. It's pretty dark, but it's based on a true story about an Indian, uh, young Indian woman that's gang raped on a bus in New Delhi. It made international news. So he has, he's, he's done a, a TV series about that. So him and I are some, often collaborating on other things while I'm writing on the side. Uh, but anyways, long answer, that's Amal. Hmm. Oh. And, and Amal is on um, Prime now, Amazon Prime. Oh. I'll definitely check it out then. I'll yeah. definitely check it out. I won't ruin the ending because the ending is awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank so you. do you have any projects right now in the works or anything you're planning on doing? Yep. I'm working on collaborating with my brother on another project um, um, based on uh, the Bandit Queen in India. Uh, so we're working on that right now. Um, and I'm working on a sequel to uh, my children's illustrator book uh, called this is called Shallow's Forever Family. The sequel is called Shallow's Sleepy Time, where Shallow's now moved in with the Forever Family and she's unable to sleep on her own because she's never slept on her own when she was in a foster home. And each member of the Forever Family is trying to teach her different strategies to make her sleep at home alone in her new cool bedroom at night. And the parents are completely sleep deprived because she can't sleep, uh, make it to night and she keeps waking them up. Yeah. So that's the second book I'm working on, which any parent can relate to because we're all sleep deprived. Uh, so that's the second book. And then I'm turning all my other novels that I've done, because I've done a bunch of novels, uh, into audiobooks uh, into, for Audible. 
just uh, I believe because uh, we can talk for hours about this. And we don't want to keep you for that long. Yeah, we don't want to keep you here for that long. I just wanted to ask you, um, obviously, being an author, being a business teacher, you have to manage yourself to hit a striking balance between your work and your passions and what you want to do. And I just wanted to ask you, for anyone that's listening, hopefully, uh, at some hopefully point. Hopefully, someone is listening. Hopefully, <laughs> someone's listening. Hi, Mom. Uh, hi, Mom. <laughs> exactly. There are many students, uh, myself included, who often have a hard time to strike that balance. Uh, obviously, even more so during online time, online university, in which you have more time to slack off, more opportunity to move away from your responsibilities. Yep. What would be some of your uh, advice? I'm not as driven as I used to be. I'll be honest about that. Uh, having, have, getting married and having a child changes your priorities and your time. Um, but for university students in particular, I always tell my students that the two most important skills you need to uh, have to be successful in university has nothing to do with your academic prowess. Um, it's all about your ability to manage time and manage stress. So stress management and time management. If you're good at those two things, you'll, you'll be fine in any program you take uh, in university or college. And I truly believe that. So. Uh, what I used to do, for example, uh, again, I'm sure things have changed since it's been 20 years now, but I would, you know, on the first day, you would normally get your syllabuses of all the things from each of your courses and when things are due. I would get a big uh, calendar and I would write down all the due dates and when things are due. And then I would work backwards to make sure uh, when I had to get them done and when I needed to start working on them. And normally what I would do is I would work for, let's say, I say I'm going to work four hours, take an hour off, work four hours, take an hour off, where I would say, okay, and if I finish this work at this amount of time, uh, then I would reward myself. I'm going to watch the show. Uh, you know, it wasn't on Netflix, but I'd watch a show or I'm going to go out or whatever. Uh, so I always found that I had to create mini goals and I had to manage my time. And then the more prepared I was, my stress levels would go down significantly. But every person is different. But I generally found that if you're disorganized and you procrastinate, you get into a load of trouble in university. Because in university, you're taking, how many courses do you guys take? Uh, five or six? Uh, five. Right. So you're taking five courses in four months when high school people take normally three classes in five months right in grade yeah. 12. so the only difference the material isn't that much harder the only difference is the fact that you have far less time to do that more work so um and then there's people i know they're super smart uh but they just freak out and they're having panic attacks and anxiety uh because they're not able to manage their stress so they need to figure out what strategies work Those are the two most fundamental pieces of advice I could give. And that doesn't apply to university. That applies for everything, to be honest, in life. You heard it here first, folks. Manage your time, manage your stress. Just call me, instead of teacher, call me guru. Like, and that's yeah. how it's going. Like, yeah. yeah, at this point. You're joined today by uh, Guru Sean. There we go. I like it. Master Sean. Yeah. All right. Um, well, thank you very much, Sean Meta, for joining us today in this episode of the podcast. We definitely got a lot from it. And, uh, for those three listeners out there, other than you two, <laughs> yeah. for, uh, for your moms out there, uh, uh, my books are on Amazon, or you can go to www.seanmeta.com, S-H-A-U-N-M-E-H-T-A.com. Thank you. We'll put yeah. this down in somewhere in the description. Yeah. Thanks, guys. All the best. Good luck. You too. Thank you. Take care.